Well, we're working through this, uh, this letter of Paul. Just uh, to give you a little bit of a recap, if you um, need that, if you're here for the first time or the first few times, then a recap can't be a bad thing, can it? It's a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Philippi, uh, a church which was made up of all sorts of different people. We saw that in the, in the account uh, of Paul going into that city, and he reached three people. I'm sure there were many other people who came to faith in that city while Paul was there. I think it's quite likely. Uh, we, we get a hint of that at the end of the chapter. But, but we see in, in the three selections that have been made that uh, a wide variety of people are reached. We have Lydia, who's a, a rich businesswoman. We have a slave girl. Uh, and we have a Roman jailer. You, it's almost like three points of a triangle, really. You couldn't get more distant, more disparate. And yet they came to faith and they came to know Jesus personally because the God opened their hearts so that they might receive the message that Paul brought. That's what we read. Uh, and so that says straight away to us today, and you might be here this afternoon thinking, I find this impenetrable, I can't really understand that, you know, my, do, do I, am I really interested even? Uh, maybe you're thinking, I, I actually am interested, but I, I need some help. Can I encourage you, the place to go is to ask God for that help. Maybe you're here this afternoon and you might feel it helpful to say right at this point in time, I've been coming along fairly regularly and uh, I need to take a step further along here. And I encourage you right now, in the quietness of your own thoughts and in your heart, believing and trusting that God hears your prayers, why don't you say, God help me now. God help me. I need for you to open my eyes. So please do it. Maybe that's something that you would find uh, helpful to do because we're going to deal with uh, a really big issue this afternoon. How we maintain the priority of the message of Jesus, which we call the gospel, so we'll call it that, the gospel of Jesus. How we maintain that as a priority in our lives when we're faced with trials. How do we maintain that? How do we keep that in focus? Paul gives us an example here. But I think for many people, that is a really key question. And Paul, the reason that we, we read from Acts is that Paul, as he writes this letter, is actually in a Roman jail. He's been arrested. We, we're not totally sure that the account that we read in Acts is the arrest that results in him being in prison for this particular letter. Well, he spent two times in prison. Uh, and so that's, it's kind of an example of the kind of life that he had. He went and he was speaking in Jerusalem and he was taken, he was beaten, he was arrested and he ended up in a Roman prison. He's not writing theoretically here, is he? I think it's really important, isn't it? Now, it's easy for us to say things. It's easiest for us to kind of say, you know, do this, do that, or think this, think that. When we're outside of the situation, Paul is in the situation here. He's actually in a Roman jail as he's writing this letter. And he's giving us an encouragement, he's giving us an example to say, 
uh, in the prison that you are in, you need to keep your focus on the gospel. Now, none of us, by default, being in this room, are in prison this afternoon. Uh, But I can tell you that we are imprisoned in different ways, aren't we? We are imprisoned in all sorts of different ways. And and probably for all of us, those imprisonments are slightly different. Uh, We had examples of Lydia, the slave girl, and the Roman jailer who were all imprisoned in different ways. They were imprisoned to their feelings, imprisoned to their emotions, imprisoned to the drive to be successful, imprisoned to the fears that they are facing, imprisoned to the the fears, perhaps, of, of an impending medical Uh, consultation or the fear of uh, financial issues. There are so many ways which we find ourselves imprisoned in this life. Uh, The question is, in the middle of that, as we are going through those specific issues in life, how do we keep a gospel focus? How do we maintain clarity and, and consistency Well, Paul has already given us an an indication of this. What he says is, firstly, uh, in verse 12, he says, you've got to make sure that you are immersing yourself. Sorry, verse 9. You need to make sure that you are immersing yourself in the knowledge of Jesus. You need to be just committed to that. Uh, It's quite a simple concept, really. You make sure that you're committed to thinking and, and just burying yourself into a relationship with Jesus and you get changed to be like the person that you spend time with. We all get changed to be like the people who we spend time with, don't we? That just happens. Uh, Even our accents change when we spend time. You know, if you're not from Yorkshire and you go back home, spend a bit of time back home and uh, after a few days you find that your accent is drifting back into uh, the accent that you used to spend a lot of time surrounded by. It's quite amusing. We go back to Liverpool on the odd occasion, and uh, I don't understand them now. <laughs> Went to a McDonald's, uh, one of these, you know, speaking to the speaker, and uh, she asked me about five questions. I couldn't understand what she was saying. I had to ask about three times. Uh, but it take a little bit of time, and you get used to it again, don't you? Isn't it true that we spend time with the people who we commit time or we become like the people who we spend time with Paul's principle is that bury some deep roots into a knowledge of Jesus and you will get changed you will be changed keep a focus that life is not about now but about a coming day which he calls the day of Christ day when Jesus will be revealed to all of creation Everybody who has ever been created in this world will see Jesus as the true one risen son of God. It will be called at the day of Christ, the day of his appearing, the point at which he is seen as Lord of all and every knee will bow before him. If you think that that day is going to happen, it will change the way you live today because that day just blows away every issue that we face today, doesn't it? It is so huge, so, so dramatic that it makes every issue that we face today not pale into insignificance, that belittles the issues that we face, not pale into insignificance. What it does is it brings them into perspective. 
It gives a, a kind of a perspective to the issues that we face. There is a coming day when Jesus will be seen and it will be unlike any other day. If we see that day coming, if we believe that day is happening, it reshapes our thinking for today. Now, okay, that's all great, but now let's work it on a little bit. How does that, how does that really deep down work in the life that we live today. Let's have a look at verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. That's it. In biographical terms, that is perhaps one of the most amazing statements that Paul makes in his letters, in biographical terms. Not, not in terms of uh, teaching, but in terms of situation, that is incredible. Doesn't look like to us, does it? But what he is saying, if you think about what he's saying, he's saying, listen, I'm in prison. And I can see that me being in prison, in this Roman prison, is for the sake of the spreading of the gospel. That's a pretty dramatic mindset change, isn't it? I can be in a prison, and I'm positive... I guess there's a couple of options here. Option one is, I've been arrested, I'm imprisoned, it's a disaster. All of my plans for the spreading of the gospel, all of my hopes, all of my expectations have been blown apart. That is not where Paul is. In your situation, in the situation that you face, in the situations that I face... It is very easy, isn't it, to have a clear focus on what we believe are the next steps in the process. And then something happens and it overturns them. It derails the ideas, the plans that we had. And Paul is so confident that there is a coming day of the Lord... He is so confident that that Jesus who he worships is sovereign over all to the point where he can wrap up the universe at a moment with a word. He's so confident that that is the God who he worships that he knows the fact that I am here is not derailing the plans of God. The fact that I am in my situation, the fact that you are in your situation, whatever that might be, is not derailing the plans of God. But it is an opportunity, rather, for us to trust and see that there are gospel opportunities. That this is for the spreading of the gospel in some remarkable way. We might never see it. But what we are called to do is to be faithful in that situation. You see, Paul finds himself in that jail, and he's got two options. I can cower in the corner, disappointed that it's not worked out, or I can spend time talking to these people who bring me my meals 
actually, that other people would have brought me. People who drag me around from one cell to the next, transport me from one place to another. The Imperial Guard. Let's think about that statement because that is dramatic. Who's the Imperial Guard? Most of us would probably know that the Imperial Guard, better know the Imperial Guard if you're into Roman history at all, the Praetorian Guard. The elite soldiers, a regiment of around about 2,000 men who were uniquely set aside to protect Caesar. Uniquely. Established by one of the early emperors. They were the elite soldiers. Now, that is amazing, isn't it, in the first place? That the message of Jesus is being shared by, to these guys. But what's even more amazing is by this stage in the history of the Roman Empire, the Praetorian Guard had moved from being just a, a, a powerful group of protectors to being the movers and shakers of the empire. Two emperors previous, Caligula, was murdered by the Praetorian Guard. They established Claudius as the new emperor. They established Claudius as the new emperor. After him came Nero, was Paul was killed under. They murdered Nero. When he says that he is sharing the message of Jesus with the imperial guard, what he is actually saying is this. This is amazing. I'm here and I am sharing the message of Jesus with the people who are shaping this world. That is, that's just astounding, isn't it? At the beginning of Acts, uh, the church are called to take the message from Jerusalem to Samaria and to the ends of the world. To the ends of the world. The ends of the world as was understood then. In fact, for many years after was understood was Rome. You know, the empire was to the ends of the world. And what Paul is saying is, do you know what? This is amazing. What we were called to do is actually happening. We're sharing the message of Jesus right at the very center of the world. The the people who control everything. This is incredible. He was excited about being in prison and being able to share that. Now look what happens as a result of that. Look at the outcome. The outcome of this we see in verse uh, 14 is that some of those who are on the outside, who are not in prison, who are facing trials, difficulties, persecutions, are actually encouraged because Paul is now at the very centre and sharing the gospel with the movers and shakers of society. They're encouraged, they're strengthened. That happens, doesn't it? We see somebody going out there, 
stepping forward, taking some initiatives, making some uh, moves for the sake of the gospel, it encourages us. We think, yeah, this is worth it. This is worth it. I want to encourage you. Be encouraged by being here. You know, it it's, might seem a small thing. It's not the center of the Roman Empire. It's not even the center of this country. But it's a step forward. It's a step out. Be encouraged in the same way as these brothers were encouraged when they saw this happening. They think, yeah, the gospel, it's, it's, got, it's, got, it's got God behind it. God is behind it. He's not, he's driving this forward. He's leading from the front, encouraging us from the back, permeating our our gathering that God is with us. Let's be confident uh, as we move forward. That's one of the things that we see. But you know, all of that can only come from what we said at the beginning. We cannot muster up that kind of strength. We can't say, I'm going to be really committed to this. I'm going to go for it. We've got to change our perspective. We've got to have a different view. We've got to say, I believe that this gospel is true, worthwhile, worth declaring, worth sharing, worth stepping forward with. Not because I feel strong inside, but because I believe in a risen saviour. I believe in a saviour who has gone before. I believe in a saviour who has died and risen again to secure eternal life for me so that I can look forward to eternal relationship with him and I know there's going to come a day when he will be revealed to all. It is only when we see that, when we know that, when we believe that in our hearts that we can really be changed. And where does that come from? It comes by being immersed in the knowledge of Jesus. So first one, gospel priority. Second one, gospel supremacy. It's really bizarre, isn't it? This next little section, verse 15 through to verse 18. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. But others from goodwill. In other words, what Paul is facing at this point in time, there's some people who are preaching, and they're preaching in such a way, which is a bit of a challenge to Paul. It's kind of knocking him in his situation, derailing his message, etc., etc. It's difficult. The latter do it out of love, those who preach from goodwill, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry. Not sincerely, but seeking, uh, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What the? It's a great question, isn't it? He's got one group of people who are outside who are preaching. And they're preaching in a way which is declaring Christ, yet negatively knocking Paul. He's got another group who he is aware of who are just encouraged and positive. They're the ones who in verse uh, 14 are, are stepping forward, I would guess. What then? What do I do about all the knocks? What do I do about all of the criticism? What do I do about my personal reputation? What do I do about me? That's kind of the question, isn't it? 
Some are knocking him. Some are positive. What do we do about that? Paul gives us an example. It's a dramatic example. Uh, it's, it's kind of so big that uh, we can grasp it and then shape it down to apply to us. He says this. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. That's a strange little bit of the Bible, isn't it? Let me put it this way. There's all sorts of people who, rather, let's put it, there are all sorts of churches, aren't there? All churches which are, in essence, faithful and true to the message of Jesus, but they're slightly different. You find it a bit frustrating that these Christians seem to spend more time arguing with each other. It's not very good, is it? What do we do about that? Paul gives us an example here. He's basically saying this. Look, if you are considering the Christian faith and are deterred because of the people who are in it, the individuals themselves, you're missing the point. Because churches are filled with ordinary people. People who are messed up, mixed up. People who are filled with envy. That's what he's saying here. There are people who are preaching and their motive is envy. But you know, through all of that, something bigger is being declared. And the something bigger is Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. And what Paul is saying, and what I would say to you is, if you carry on looking at churches as a litmus test of whether the Christian faith is true, acceptable, worth embracing, you are on a hiding to nothing because you're listening, as Paul puts in a different letter, you're listening to people who are jars of clay, weak, frail, uh, people who are prone to all sorts of messed up attitudes. But in and amongst that, something beautiful is being declared. Something above, beyond, greater than Jesus. That's what he says. He says, you know what? There's some people who are declaring it for all the wrong motives. But Jesus gets proclaimed. Jesus is declared. I would say exactly the same to you. If you're thinking about this. If you're working through this issue. Or perhaps if you're maybe at times destabilized because somebody in the church has upset you. Or you see envy or rivalry in the church. I don't want to kind of gloss over this. We've got to be honest here. Uh, don't be surprised. Church is full of ordinary people. But in amongst that, something perfect is proclaimed. A perfect message of a perfect person. A person who is never filled with rivalry. A person who is never filled with envy. 
a person who is perfect in every way. Paul says this, in all of this, Christ is proclaimed, and in that, I rejoice. If that's there, people are going to hear it, and some people are going to embrace it, and come to know him, because we're a channel to him. We are not the answer. He is the answer. That's what Paul is saying. I think that's remarkable, isn't it? I think it just deals with one of the big issues that we face with churches today. What about all these churches? But how do we move? Okay, we've got gospel priority, that in, the, in a jail he's got a priority that the gospel is being shared. We've got gospel supremacy that in spite of all of the messed up attitudes, Christ is proclaimed. What about this? How do we move to worship? How do we move to how do we get there to the point where we can can live like that? It's really simple and yet impossible to achieve in human terms. It's simply this. Paul has understood this. You can strip me of anything. You can strip me of my liberty. You can strip me of my possessions. You can strip me of my relationships. You can take it all away. But you can never, never take Jesus Christ away from me. Therefore, I can be in this jail... And because of that, I can be a worshipper. I can be a worshipper of Jesus because there is nothing else that I'm worshipping. There is nothing else that is giving me the security of life. There is nothing that is providing for me. He provides everything. How do we move to that? We destroy our idols. Let's destroy our idols. Paul has destroyed his idols. His idol was his religion, his uprightness. He was so secure in that. He knew that he lived a good life. He thought that he was just right before God. When he came to face God, he believed that God would accept him because he had done everything right. And then one day... As he's on his way to destroy more of these Christians who are claiming that Jesus is the Son of God, he's met by God in Jesus himself. And Jesus says to him, Paul, Saul as he was then, why are you persecuting me? And I would say that however long it took, whether it was an instant thing, whether it was as he spent that time in blindness and thinking, or as he was taught afterwards, he understood this. I have relied on my religiosity. I have relied on my goodness. And I cannot. That is, that is worshipping something other than Jesus himself. I need to be stripped of that so that I can truly be a worshipper of him. 
Now, exactly the same applies to every one of us today. What do we, you know, it's a question that you might have heard. Many people use this, this analogy. I think it's really helpful. What's your idol? I haven't got a totem pole in the back room. But what if it was taken away from you tonight? What in your life, if it was taken away in an instant like that, and it can be, anything in this world can go like that. What is there in your life that if it went, you would fall apart, you would be destroyed, you would be helpless? What is it? Because that is your idol. That is your security, isn't it? Whatever it is that you could not live without. I don't know. Maybe if you had a horrific accident and you lost your looks, you would be destroyed. You might be living, but you would fall apart. Maybe if you lost your job or your home or your relationship, whatever it is, if you lost it, you would just, life, you, wouldn't, you, would, you would actually think, I can't go on. That is your idol. And we will never, we will never get to the point of being able to be in a Roman prison, figuratively speaking, and still be a worshipper until we are stripped of those idols. Until we let go of them and say they will never, never satisfy me. There is one who will satisfy me. There is one who will provide for me in every deep spiritual way so that I become a worshipper of him. Paul was stripped of everything as he wrote this letter and was he still a worshipper? How? Because somebody else had been stripped of everything to allow him to be a worshipper. We read later on in this very letter he says that Jesus was in the form of God he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. He was, before he came into this world, in the very presence of God, equal with his Father, in the perfection of heaven, and yet he didn't hold on to it. He didn't hold tight and say, I'm not going there. He allowed himself to be stripped. He gave up everything. He came into this world and he became just like you and me. The God who created the world had a heartbeat that one day stopped as the blood stopped pumping around his body as he died on a cross. That is stripped of everything, isn't it? 
That is just stripped of everything. So that we might find relationship with him. So that we might find the kind of Christ who is worth worshipping and stripping ourselves of everything else because he's my security. He's my hope. That is the only way to face the ultimate trials in life. My, just to close, my best man uh, was 45, I think it was, when he died. And um, he'd been working in Africa for a number of years, straight out of university. And uh, he was an adventurous kind of guy. He was, just, he was just out there, you know, let's just go and do it sort of guy. And he was working in Kenya. And uh, it was during the time, as some of you will remember, Ian Smith, Rhodesia and the uprising uh, during that time. And uh, he decided at the end of a year's voluntary service to trek from Kenya right the way down through Africa to South Africa and get a boat home. Took him a year came to Rhodesia, and uh, he was told by the British embassy, you can't go through Rhodesia, so we went through Rhodesia. That's the kind of guy that he was. And um, he was, uh, during that time, you know, 1970s, there wasn't much awareness of things like, um, you know, uh, what's it called, the, the, the Australian slap on the sun cream thing. There was nothing of that. He was not protected, and uh, he... He um, contracted a melanoma skin cancer. He died at 45 and left uh, three young children and, and a wife. And uh, I was chatting to him and said, Glenn, um, what's it like to die? He was able to say, somebody who is actually at that point stripped of everything, successful man, Chartered accountant, nice home, lovely family, everything lined up. He's stripped of everything. There's no hope. He's got secondaries all over him, all over his body. He's physically not able to move around the house anymore. Now, it's a poignant question at that point, isn't it? What's it like to die? He said, I don't know what it's like to die without Jesus. But that was his answer. Because that gave him hope. It gave him security. It gave him confidence. Christ has gone before me. I can face any trial. The imprisonment of cancer that is finally going to spell the end of your life as my friend, my good friend was able to testify Jesus frees me and gives me hope.